Amen. What an amazing time of worship. Amen. He is truly the God that the word of God says he is, not the God that we make him to be. And we are thankful to worship him this morning. Uh, this morning, we're going to do something or start something a little bit different. Um, if you weren't with us in either 2020 or 2018, um, we're doing a series this week, starting a series this week. We're going to go for six weeks, and the series is entitled Conversations with God. So it's a familiar series title, uh, but if you weren't with us in 2020, that was the last time we did this, um, and it's just kind of every couple of years, uh, the Lord kind of leads me to, to do this again. Um, and really what we want to do over uh, the next six weeks is look at different conversations you would have with God. If you could sit down and, and have coffee with God or, or have a time with him, and we know that we can spend time with the Lord anytime we want by getting in his word, but if you could literally physically sit down with God and have a conversation over coffee, what kind of things would you want to talk to him about? What kind of conversations would you want to have? What questions would you have? And I, I know there's some people like, well, when I get to heaven, brother, you know, the Bible says we're going to be like him and we're not going to ask any questions. I agree with you. We're not. We're not going to ask questions when we get to the to heaven. We're going to fall on our face before him and worship him as the Savior and the God that he is. But before we get there, I don't know about you. Does anyone have any questions right now in the life that you live right now that you would have with God? If you could have a conversation with God, you got some questions? Raise your hand. Okay, a few people. Most of you are just like, oh, I'm so spiritual. I don't need to ask God anything. That's fine. I have all kinds of questions for God. Uh, I found, and I had a professor in college tell me that the longer you're a follower of Christ and the more you read his word, the chances are you'll have at the end of your life way more questions than answers. And that's okay. So I want to start by saying this. Questions and, and going to God and saying, God, I just don't get this. That's totally fine. He welcomes that, by the way. He wants us to have conversations with him. But in the last uh, couple series that we did in 2020 and 2018, we carried or we covered various topics. And so if you missed those, if you weren't with us, um, I believe they're all online going back to 2018. Um, and they're also in CD form. If you would prefer to have it on CD for your vehicle or something, uh, you can go to the Welcome Center and we have like a kind of like a library system. You can just check out those series. There's actually tons of series that are on CD that are, are there. Uh, so online or series, you can get the conversations with God. Uh, we covered a lot of different topics in those two series. Um, everything from politics, faith, um, church, uh, abortion, homosexuality. Uh, we, we really covered some deep topics in that series. And so over the next six weeks, we're going to cover some different topics. So we're not going back. We're not going to cover those topics again. But if you want to catch up on those or if you missed those, you can check those out at the Welcome Center or online. This morning, what we're going to start is this idea of talking about what would we do if we could serve God better, love God more. And so over the next six weeks, we're going to cover that topic as well as many others. We're going to talk about what would God say about how we could change the world? Like if you could sit down with God and say, how can I change the world? How can, how can I see change in my world or my area of influence? We're going to talk about that. Uh, we're going to talk about what would God say about a term that we're hearing right now, deconstruction. What would God say about deconstruction? And that's a, a popular term among evangelicals nowadays or, or de-evangelicals is a term I'm hearing as well. And, and so what would God say about that? Uh, what would God say about when he's going to come back? What would God say about when he's going to come get us? Amen. And we get to go home to be with him. And so we're going to cover these topics over the coming six weeks. Now, obviously, a 45-minute message or longer is not enough time, amen, is not enough time 
to go exhaustively into every one of these topics. We understand that. So we're not going to, in a 45 minute message, literally cover every aspect of every question, every conversation we have. What my desire is, and I pray that God will use my words by agreeing with his words to affirm this in your heart and mind, that what I want to do is kind of set the stage, scratch the surface, give you a base idea of what we're talking about. And then you can go back into your devotional time, your prayer closet, you get alone with God and you begin to seek God's answer to those questions that you might have or to go deeper into a conversation with God. So this is not uh, an end-all, be-all. I'm not going to exhaustively go through every possible application, but that's not really the point. The point is just to kind of get us on that track and then let you and God have some some time together. And the other thing I want to say is, Everything we're going to do in the next six weeks, which I pray isn't a surprise to you, is we're going to dive into his word to get the answers to our questions. Um, It's great to ask questions of God, but when we ask questions of God, we have to be willing to hear the answer he wants to give us, not the answer we want. And so now, uh, let's be clear. Scripture does not definitively lay out black and white every possible answer to every question you're ever going to have. Okay? Uh, there's questions you have, you go to scripture, well, the Bible doesn't specifically say, thou shalt do whatever. Thou shalt move from Indiana to this state, or thou shalt move from this career to that career. It's not spelled out like that. There are things that are black and white in scripture, but there's other things that take a level of discernment. They call them gray areas. And they're areas where we come into a, a decision or a question with God, and we can't go to scripture and see. I, if you struggle with, God, should I... Should I lead my neighbor to Christ? And if he receives Christ, should I disciple him? I just don't know if your word addresses that. And we can't do that because the word is very clear on those things. God, should I pray? I just don't know if I'm supposed to pray. Well, yeah, the Bible says you pray without ceasing. So those are those black and white, easy. God, should I go to church today? I just, you know, I'm not feeling it today. That's an easy one. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. So there are clear instructions in Scripture. Praise God for his grace when we blow the clear instructions. Amen. I don't know about you, but it's some clear things. And I'm like, wow, that was clear. And I still blew it. But there are those gray areas. And so what we want to do is we want to either look in the scripture and see, okay, are there some clear, definitive, this is what God's word says, or are there general principles that I can draw from by the the leading of the spirit to say, this is not clearly defined, but I believe based on these principles of scripture, They're in agreement with those things, and therefore that's why I would do this or that. Uh, For example, maybe you're trying to decide about something in your career. And the Bible doesn't specifically say, you by name move to this job and don't do that job anymore. But there are tons of verses and principles on seeking wisdom from God, seeking godly counsel from those that are around you, right? Praying on this, asking God for wisdom, evaluating your motivation for why you want to do what you want to do. So it's not clearly defined, move here, start this job, quit that job. But there's tons of principles about wisdom and prayer and your heart and your motivation and what makes the best use of your talents and your gifts. And so that's what we want to do over the next six weeks. All right. Just want to set the stage with you. So uh, something a little different. Now I do this all the time on Wednesday nights, but I'm going to sit down while I teach this morning because I want it to kind of be like a conversation with God. So if that bothers anyone or offends anyone, my email is john at northgoodland.org. Shoot that over. I've got a nice little folder that I keep specially for those emails, okay? It's off on the left-hand side there. I won't tell you what it's called, but I I put them all in there. No, I'm just kidding. I don't do that. Um, But no, I just want to kind of, again, set the stage as though we're having a conversation with God. And so again, 
I want you to imagine you're sitting down with him and you're having this conversation, a cup of coffee. Now, I should say, we did put some stuff on Facebook and asked just anyone in the church to respond on Facebook. What would, what would be a conversation you would have with God? And so I am taking some of those and kind of a few of those and kind of combining them together in general categories of what that would look like. And then we're going to talk about those things. But I should say, a couple of people said, well, it'd probably be more than one cup of coffee with God. Uh, if I could sit down with him, it'd be multiple cups of coffee, right? You'd be like, I don't want this to end. You're going to stay here until I'm done because I got a lot of questions. So again, we understand that. But this morning, one of the questions we had, and one of the things we want to respond is, what would God say about how we can love him more? What would God say about how we can love him more? And that was one of the kind of the questions that came back from just people on Facebook. You could also say it this way. How can I be a better steward of what God has given me? I believe those two things are connected. I think when we strive to be a good steward of what God has given us, we will strive to love him more. I see a connection in those two things. And so what do we mean by that? When we say we want to love him more, uh, I want to be clear on this. Loving God more Uh, is not something you do to keep God loving you, okay? The only reason you love God and can express love to God is because the Bible says he first loved us. You don't love God naturally, right? The Bible says we reject the light and we love the darkness because our deeds are done in darkness and we want that. So um, this is not about, okay, if you love God more, then you'll be better blessed and your bank account will get bigger and you'll have all this. Nope, that's, you can find that stuff on channels on satellite or on YouTube, but we're not going to do that here. It's just saying because God has just given us such a great love, he's, he's lavished his love on us, we should desire to, in turn, love him more. And how do I love him more? Well, I believe it comes down to being a steward of what God has given us, a good steward. So what does that word mean? So steward deals with the idea, and if you're taking notes, I encourage you to do so. But if you want to get these notes, you can also do that as well, um, I also decided to give God the, the higher chair. I felt that was appropriate. So when I was putting these, these chairs don't match. They're from the lobby. And I was like, I'm going to take, uh, I'm taking the smaller chair. God can have the taller chair. So what do we mean by a good steward? And if you like these mugs, by the way, I shouldn't have put bright orange mugs in front of me because I get distracted real easy. Okay. Uh, they are empty, by the way. Josiah was like, you should put coffee in there. And I was like, yeah, that's what I need to do is try to drink coffee, spill it all over my Bible right in front of the whole church. That's not going to happen. But if you like these mugs, these are uh, what we give to visitors when they visit. So if you're visiting for the first time, stop by the Welcome Center, pick one up, fill out a card. Uh, but if you would like, you can also buy one. If you have one or had one and broke it, I'm not saying anyone breaks dishes when they're doing dishes. I, I learned a long time ago, someone said, if you don't want to do the dishes when you're married, just break the first dish the first time you're asked to do the dishes and you'll never have to do dishes again. So little marriage advice for you if you want some free advice this morning. But this idea of, now, that doesn't really work, though, because it's not like they know where you got the idea from. So, but this is really for the wives, because I want you to do dishes. But anyway, um, the men should do dishes, I mean. But, so when we think about this idea of being a good steward, getting back to what we're talking about this morning, the idea of steward deals with the idea of managing something that has been given to you. Managing, when we say a good steward, we've heard this phrase before. A good steward is someone who manages well what's been given to them. Or another way you could say it is entrusted to them. Something's been entrusted to you and you are expected and and encouraged to manage that well, to to take care of what's been given to you. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about this morning. To get us thinking down this road, I want to ask a question to kind of help us get on this idea of stewardship. 
And you don't need to answer out loud, but I want you to think about right where you are. I want you to think about your life right now. I want you to think about your family, your career, your finances, your home, whatever you have, okay? So children, grandchildren, whatever you have, I want to ask you, what do you have? And don't answer out loud, but just between you and the Lord, what do you have that has not been given to you? So what do you have in your life right now that has not been given to you? Meaning you weren't the origin of that thing or that person. The answer is pretty simple. Nothing in your life do you have because it wasn't given to you. Everything has been given to you. The very breath in your lungs was given to you. See, some people say, well, no, but I worked for this house. I worked for this car. I worked for this. Well, yeah, but how did you work for that? Well, you worked for that because you had a physical ability to do the work. Well, how did you have physical ability to go to work? Because God has given you breath in your lungs and strength in your body to go do that thing. God has given you the ability to have intelligence and to think through problem solving and to study a a topic. Or maybe you went to school for whatever you're doing. and, And God gave you the wisdom, the intellect to do that thing. So everything you have is a gift. Everything. Your children are a gift from God. Now, I know sometimes we don't think that. Sometimes we think our children are more of a curse than a gift, but they are a gift. If anyone's raising a two-year-old, we, we, we cry with you, we pray with you, we lament with you, a gift. Your grandchildren are a gift, by the way, to all our grandparents here. Not just because you can sugar them up and send them home. They're a gift from God. God has given them to you. So, so my question as we begin is this, if everything you have has been given to you, it's been entrusted to you, then the question we have to ask at the very beginning is, okay, God, if you've given all of this to me as a follower of Christ, as somebody who's received Christ my Savior, how would you have me to manage these things? How would you have me to take care of these things? And so we've been loaned this very life. Your life is not really yours. You didn't decide to come into existence. God brought you into existence. Your life has been given to you as a gift. And at the end of this life, here's the reality. We will give an account for this life. For those of us in Christ, not unto salvation. It's not, well, I worked good enough things so I get to go to heaven. No, no. Your salvation is in the finished work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection. That's done. But you will give an account as a follower of Christ is what you've done with this life. You're saved. That is not in question. Don't ever think, and we've heard this illustration before, that God's going to get you to heaven and bring down a big screen and put all your life up on the screen and everyone's going to be gathered around watching this. And do you want to be embarrassed when when you don't meet up to what sister or brother so-and-so had and their rewards? It's not in the Bible. Whenever it talks about judgment, it's individual judgment. God is not going to compare me to John Belasco. Praise God. Right? Because I'll probably fall way short, okay? It's not a comparison game. It's not, I'm, well, I'm, I'm a better Christian than this guy or that person or this. No, no, no. It's individual between you and God. And when you stand as a follower of Christ, the Bible says all of our works will be tried through the fire. And the only things that will remain is the things we've done for Jesus. So all the worldly things you've been storing up for those last 20 years of your life so you can live really comfortably, that's going to all be gone, by the way. But man, the things we do for Jesus, the things that we invest for Jesus. So your, your finances, your money is not yours. We just established this, right? 
God doesn't have a right to 10% of your money. God has a right to all of your money because it's really his. He's just loaned it to you. So how you manage all of your finances reflects your relationship with Christ. Not so that you can go to heaven when you die. That's already settled. But as a follower of Christ, how are you managing what he's given you? How are you managing time with your family, time with your spouse? We talked about it last week, bridling our tongue. I'm not going to ask you to raise a hand if anyone blew it this week in bridling your tongue. I'll be honest enough to admit that I blew it. There was one day where I realized as the words were leaving my mouth, that's not in check. The Spirit's not restraining my words because I'm not allowing the Spirit to do that. So I'm not going to ask you how you did this week on bridling your tongue. If you missed last week, you can get it online. But as we think about this life, everything's been given to us. The truth is, as we said in a series that we did back in January of 21, uh, first things first was the name of the series. And this quote I pulled from that message because the Lord laid it on my heart again. The, The truth is when God is first in your life, all things will fall into order. When God is not first in your life, nothing will be in order. When God is first in our life, all things will fall into order. I didn't say everything you want will happen. I didn't say all your human dreams will be met. Because, by the way, those dreams, I hear people say this, well, God wants to meet you where you are. And if you dream a dream, God will give you that dream. That's not in the Bible. The Bible says he'll answer our prayers when we cry out in his name, if it's in agreement with his will, not just because you dream it, not because you have it on a board somewhere and you, you know, positively tell yourself with good thinking and this other new age nonsense. That's not in the Bible. The Bible says if we put our eyes and our heart on him, if it's in his will, he will fulfill that prayer for his glory, for his praise. If we put him first, all things will fall into order. You may not get the promotion. You may not see that thing you want come to be, but that's okay because all things in order mean it's in agreement with his will and it's pleasing him. It's honoring him. And that's really what this life is all about. But when we take him out of first place, we can strive, we can work, we can fight, but nothing will be in order. There'll just be this feeling of chaos, the uneasiness. And if I'm being honest, the reason I think we see the things we see in our world today is because people want contentment, peace, and joy. They hunger for it, and they're looking for it in all these wrong things. And when they put God first, then they'll find true peace, true joy, true satisfaction in the same job. Hear me now in the same job you've always worked, in the same relationship you've always had with your spouse. How many people today are searching for something and they think, well, maybe a different spouse will solve it. Uh, Maybe a relationship with someone who's not my spouse, maybe that'll solve it. You know what they find? Destruction, chaos, damage to their spouse, to their children, to their community, to their friends. We think it's just, if I can find this thing. No, no, no. Put your eyes on Christ. And let him lead you. Keep him first, and all things will fall into order. Matthew chapter 25. Turn there with me. We're going to read a few verses this morning. Matthew chapter 25, in verse 14. So if we were to sit with God this morning, and we were going to have some coffee with him, and we're going to have a conversation, and we would say, God, how can I love you more? How can I be a better steward of what you've given me? How can I live in a way that reflects your glory? I think it's fair to say that, that Jesus, 
would take us to this passage as maybe one example of what he might try to express to us. So Matthew 25 and verse 14. Now the entire parable goes to verse 30. We're not going to read the entire parable. We're going to read a few verses and kind of skip around a little bit, but I encourage you to reread this on your own. And actually all of Matthew 24 and 25 will give you the greater context, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But look at Matthew 25 and verse 14. And I apologize, I did not write down the page number for the, the Bibles and the seats. Um, I've been doing pretty good at that, and I forgot that this time, so I apologize for that. But Matthew 25 and verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country, who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. And then it begins to unpack what happens here, what they did with it. It goes on to say here, and uh, let's see here. Um, where do I want to go here? Verse, 29, or verse 19. After a long time, the Lord of those servants comes and reckons with them. So he wants an account of what they did. And you can go on and read here. The man that had five made ten. The one that had two made more. And the one that had one, he dug it in the ground and he hid it. Goes on to say and encourages in verse 21. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. To the one that was faithful with a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Verse uh, 22 talks about what he had done. So verse 23. His Lord said unto him, well done, good and faithful servant. So again, very similarly. You were faithful with little, I'll make you ruler over much. Then we get down to verse 24. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord... I knew thee that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not uh, strawed. And I was afraid, and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, thou hast that is thine. So basically gave him back what he gave him originally. Verse 26, his Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore have put my money to exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received my own with usury or interest. Then it says that he took the talent from him, gave it to the man, the first man that was faithful. And then it says that he was cast the unprofitable servant out. Let's pray and ask God to give us wisdom in this and see how we can apply this by God's grace to our topic this morning. Father, we thank you for your love and mercy. We thank you for your word. And we pray that as only you can, by the working of your spirit, that you would give us wisdom and guidance in all of this. Lord, help us to have clarity of mind, an understanding and a wisdom that comes only from you that we would live differently because of the word this morning and we would go from this place desiring to allow our lives to be a reflection of you, your glory, and all that you desire for us. Father, this seems like a really broad topic and a hard thing to tackle, but really, Lord, I, I believe there's some simple principles here that once we, by your grace, endeavor to understand, I believe we can apply them to various areas of our life and I believe you can give us instruction in those specific areas as we look at a general idea this morning. And so, Father, again, we pray that it, as only you can do it, that you would just work in and through this topic this morning. Lord, we pray that if there's anybody here that doesn't know you as their Lord and personal Savior, they would come to know you before they leave this place. Father, there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved than the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need you, Lord. We cannot enter heaven on our own merit. We are sinful and in need of a Savior. And I pray that you would show us your grace is for us, that we can repent and turn from our sin, no matter where we've been or what we've done, glorifying you 
receiving you as our Savior. Father, again, thank you for all of this, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so this passage, Matthew 25, uh, some of you are familiar with these two chapters, 24 and 25. And this is something that takes place during what we call the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse. And so what this is, is specific teaching that Jesus was giving based on a question the disciples asked that more or less said, when is all this going to come to an end? When are you going to return? And so these two chapters are dealing with what we call the second coming of Christ. Now, this is not, in most people's thinking, and I would agree, not the rapture. It's not referring to the rapture, which is the church being raptured and meeting the Lord in the air, as Thessalonians talks about. This is referring to the second coming, when Christ actually returns as he said he would in Acts chapter 1, when the angel said, he's left this way, he's coming again this way. And so praise God, he is going to return. Amen? This is not a hope. And a wish, it is a guarantee on his word. But as we talk about these two things, you're going to see here, this parable is a story meant to elaborate a spiritual truth. As all parables are, we have to be careful not to read into every single part of a parable. We take the general spiritual truth and apply that and allow God to give us wisdom in what is what. All right? The basic idea here is that there's two understandings. There's the contextual understanding. What was it really referring to? And if this is the second coming, it's talking about Israel making themselves ready for the return of Christ. Okay. And there's some different things going on there. Right before this, we read the parable of the 10 virgins, which again is a parable of preparation. This parable is a parable of activity. Okay. Parable of the 10 virgins, virgins is be ready, be prepared. This parable is dealing with what are you doing in the meantime? How are you preparing? How are you actively doing what God has called you to do so that when he returns, specifically with Israel, they're ready to go? Okay? So this is the contextual understanding. We're looking at the general principle that we find here, which the general principle is stewardship. That all throughout human history, God has given gifts to mankind. We just established this. Everything you have is a gift. And so in a general understanding, we want to understand that God is calling us to be faithful servants. He is calling us to be faithful in whatever he has given us that we need to be faithful. Again, in this parable, we see a story of a man that had servants and he entrusted to them talents. Now, this talent is not referring to necessarily in the context, a talent meaning like I can do backflips. Or, I, you know, I'm double-jointed and I can do weird things with my elbows, which is so creepy. If you can do it, please don't show me. It just disgusts me, okay? But don't show me that. Um, I can turn my eyelids inside out, okay? These are, these are weird talents, but talents, right? They're things that we can do, little weird things that we do. Some people are talented with sports. Some people are talented with academics. You just have a gift for that. This is not necessarily in the context what he's talking about. In the specific context, he's talking about money. At the end, he says, you could have taken that money, put it in the bank, gained me some interest. At least I'd have something. So this specific context is dealing with money. In our application, we're not going to tie it to just money. We're looking at the bigger picture and saying, it's anything that God has given you, which includes our money. But as we said, other things as well. In this understanding, a talent is really the largest denomination of money in the Greco-Roman world. And so a talent is a very large sum of money. Uh, Depending on how you look at the the conversion, some would say it's roughly 6,000 days of wage. So if you were paid for 6,000 days 
this would be the total wage that you would gain. And in this culture, when he said a certain man, a certain rich man or a wealthy man gave talents to his servants in the culture, they instantly know what he's talking about. They connect it to that story. Some, if you study this out, say that talents represents the gospel, that he's giving them a representation of the gospel. Uh, Some say that it's spiritual gifts. Some say that it's the word of God. So depending on what commentary you read, if you search this on Google, you're going to get different opinions on what are these talents. I look at this and I would say the general principle is a little bit easier to put into the text, which is anything that God has given you. Any gift that you've received is meant to be used for his glory, for his purposes, okay? To, do, to be faithful in what he's given you. Again, notice that each servant was given according to his ability, to his ability, to his capabilities of doing something with it. None of them are seen as derogatory. The guy that was given one wasn't a worse person than the guy that was given five. It's just different abilities. So let's think about this in our context. Some of you work jobs where your ability to serve in the church is more limited than someone else, right? Now, I've shared this before. We had somebody that recently retired, and they said they were so thankful they were finally retired because they could finally do something in the church that they've been wanting to do. They just didn't have the time to do it. They didn't have the days to do it. And so that's kind of an example, again, where God has gifted you and called you, but your ability is such that maybe you can't do what someone else can do who has more time, right? Some of you are gifted in teaching. Some of you are gifted more in serving and ministering behind the scenes. Neither one is better than the other, by the way, right? The person that comes up and cleans the carpet every week so you can have a clean building, that person is not less important than the people who get up here and sing praise and worship. There's no such thing as a hierarchy like that in church. It's just ability. It's just calling. It's just what they have time for, what their interests are, what God has gifted them. And so it's not a derogatory thing. Each one is given individually something that they can use for God's glory and use to be faithful to him. So how can I demonstrate a stronger love for God in how I manage my life? Now, I don't mean to scare you, but that was the introduction. We said multiple cups of coffee, right? Didn't we start with that? I think we did. So we'll see how far we get. And if we need to, we'll just spread it out a little bit farther. But um, which somebody may have teased me about this week. So hopefully they're watching. Um, So when you think about this, how do I manage my life better? Well, here's what we can look at. The first thing we need to realize is what he has given you. What he has given you. Look at verse 14 again. We need to realize what he has given you. It says, for the kingdom of heaven. This is again where we get the idea of that the coming return of Christ is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods, his goods. So what has he given you? We've already established it. All things. I want you to say all things. So what has he given you? So therefore all things should be managed with him in mind, right? Literally everything. One commentary says it this way, and it's a longer quote, but I love this. The goods referred to here relates to all their gifts and endowments, whether original or acquired, natural or spiritual. 
as all that slaves have belongs to their master. And again, this word for servants here can also be slaves. And we know as Christians, as followers of Christ, we're called to be bond servants. We're slaves to Jesus in a sense. We've surrendered control of our lives to him. I know that's not a popular idea today because we're very independent, right? As Americans, my freedom, my rights, my choice. That's great. You want the greatest freedom in your life? Surrender everything to Jesus and you'll be freer than you can ever imagine. But that's where freedom really comes. And so he goes on to say this. As all that slaves have belongs to their master, so Christ has a claim to everything which belongs to his people, everything which may be turned to good. And he demands its appropriation to his service. Or viewing it otherwise, they first offer it up to him as being not their own, but being bought with a price, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And he delivers it to them again to be put into use for his service. So you, everything you have is, is the Lord's. And so you say, Lord, this is all yours. And then he gives it back to you in a sense. It says, okay, I'm giving it and trusting it to you. Now use it for my glory. Now use it for my good, for my purposes. So what do we have? Everything that we have is his. All things are given to us and they're given to us for his glory. We live and breathe for the glory of God and how we work or in how we raise our children, how we talk to others, and how we serve at the church. How often we attend church. How often we engage with non-believers with the gospel. How often we serve those in need, even if it's inconvenient. All of those things we do for his glory. If you do anything for the Lord, so that at the end of it, you get the credit, I'm just going to give you a little bit of a warning. There's no joy in that. There's no peace in that. Because you won't always get a thank you. You won't always get a pat on the back. And if you're doing it so that you'll be recognized when those things don't come and you don't get the thank yous, you don't get the great jobs and you don't get the recognition, you're going to be bitter. And you're going to get angry. Well, they didn't recognize me. They didn't honor me. They didn't. Now, we should honor each other. I'm fine with that. And I, I'm so thankful. And here, just in a, well, really a couple of months, we're going to do Appreciation Sunday again at the end of September, where we literally just spend a morning saying thank you to all of our volunteers and servers. But if you serve so that you get recognized, I'm just going to tell you now, there's no fruit in that. Now, I'm not saying God's not going to use it because he will. He'll bring glory through anyone or anything because he's God and he'll always be glorified. But if I came up here every morning and I only was filled up by the thank yous I get from people in the church or the feeling I get from doing this because I think, man, they appreciate this, I'd never be up here. And that's not because people don't thank me because they do. I'm blessed. I can't tell you. I got a folder in my desk filled with encouraging cards that people have given me. And I'm so thankful for every single one. And they come randomly, which is awesome. Usually on a Monday or a Tuesday when I'm kind of like, you know, oh, discouraged because I'm in my emotions and I'm not thinking biblically and something happens. And then I get this card in the mail from someone just saying, I just want you to know we appreciate you and Sandra and all that you do. That's those moments that, yes, it's encouraging. But if I lived for that, man, I, I would starve. But when we realize we're doing all of this for his glory, then when you're not recognized, he knows and he's glorified. And that's where our peace comes. And so the first thing we need to realize is what have we been given? All things from him for his glory. The second thing we need to realize is who he is. Who he is. Go to verses 24 and 25 again of Matthew uh, 25. Then he which had received the one talent came and said, Lord, 
I knew thee that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid. That's a key right there. I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast that, that is thine. I, I was afraid. The wicked and lazy servant in this parable has a view of the master as a hard man, as a difficult man, someone unable to be pleased. He went a step farther and said, I, basically, I don't want to make the situation worse. I already know you're hard and difficult. So rather than make the situation worse, I just hit it so that at least I could give you back what you gave me. Because I don't want to make this worse than it already is. Wiersbe, Warren Wiersbe in his commentary said this, and I think he said it well. Because this man was afraid to fail, he never attempted to succeed. Because this man was afraid to fail, he was never willing or able to succeed. See, his view of God directly impacted his service to God. In the parable, we understand it's the view of the master. We're applying it to our lives. Our view of God directly impacts how we serve him and where we serve him and why we serve him. His view of the master dictated how he served the master. And I believe this is true of many in the church today. This is honestly why many don't serve in not church North Goodland, church, broader church, church in our country. And many don't serve. Why? Because they're so afraid of failing God. They don't even want to try because their view of God is wrong. Their view of the master is not biblical. Does God have expectations? Of course he does, but he also has grace and compassion. And when we step out by faith and we fail, whether because we did it in our own strength or guys eyes off him, or we let discouragement creep in or a negative word from somebody who's sitting on their hands in church and not doing anything, but want to criticize you and how you serve. These things happen in ministry and you get discouraged and you go, forget it, God. I'm, I'm so sorry. I blew it. God's not like, I'm so mad at you <laughs> because you tried and didn't succeed the first time. No, he's gracious. and He picks us up and he uses us still for his glory. One author said it this way, this idea of viewing God the way that this servant did. He said this, thus do men secretly think of God as a hard master and virtually throw on him the blame of their fruitlessness. Well, God, it's not my fault. You're just so hard to please. Here, the Bible is pretty clear that the master responded in light of how the servant viewed him. Do you see that? The master says, okay, fine. You want to think me that way? Then this is who I am. To you, this is who I am. See, the view of the master directly impacted how the servant served him. When we have the right view of God as a good master, we will serve him faithfully in joy and peace because through faith in Christ, we have peace with God, Romans 5 and verse 1. See, we need to realize what we have, what's been given to us, but we also need to realize who he is, who he is. We also need to remember why he's been gone. So we need to realize these things and then also we need to remember why he's been gone. Remember, the master in this parable goes away on a long journey. And he leaves his servants and trusted them with this task of being faithful. But where did he go? Why did the master even leave? Well, applying the parable to us, we see here in verse 15. And unto one he gave five talents and so on and so forth there, according to his ability. And straightway took his journey. So where's, where's our master been? Where's our Lord Ben, well, he's been preparing a place for you. He's been preparing a place for you. 
He's been going abroad is what that term means, that he went away into a far country. We hear this same expression used in a negative sense in the parable of the prodigal son, where he went away into a far country. It doesn't mean a specific nation. It just means he went away far away. He went abroad. And here this master just goes away. Notice there's no definitive time of his return. This is like when I was a kid and my my parents would say, we're going to go to the store. We're going to go do some errands. And when we come back, we want your bedroom cleaned. But they would never tell us how long they're going to be gone for. Now, every child knows if you know when they're coming back, you can do the math and you're going to go, I only need really 15 minutes to clean my room. So I'll wait till 15 minutes before they get back. Then I'll go clean my room real fast. But they wouldn't tell us. And so then we're like, well, we've got to clean the room first. Right? So that's not fun. In the same way, the master doesn't say, I'm going away and I'll be back here. I'll be back then. And we're going to talk about this in a few weeks. Do we have any idea of when he's going to return? Well, there's some things in scripture we're going to look at. But notice here, it's just, I'm just going away. And we love the idea. And we know that Jesus left earth and went back to heaven to prepare a place for you and I. John chapter 14. And why did he do that? So that when he returns, he may bring you unto himself. That where he is, there you may be also. Jesus left this world 2,000 years ago. And he's going to return. We don't know for sure definitively when. If you hear or read an article or see a book about somebody saying, oh, he's going to return this year and this day, turn the channel off, put the book down, throw it away. It's all garbage. They don't know. There's great assumptions being made and educated guesses being made. But the minute somebody says it's right here, don't listen because they don't know. Jesus said, don't concern yourself with that. Go make disciples in Acts chapter one. That was the disciples questions. Okay, now are you going to do the kingdom? Now are you going to? Don't worry about that. Don't worry about the seasons. Don't worry about the times. You just go be faithful. Do you see the, the connection here? Just go be faithful servants. Just go make disciples. Just go preach the gospel. Go serve the church. He has decided to leave his church on earth with the word of God and the empowering of the Holy Spirit to be his ambassadors, to represent him and his kingdom, which we are citizens of already. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20. You see, as his servants, you are not called to be perfect. You are not called to be a perfect servant. You are called to be a faithful servant, separated from the cares of this world and consumed by the person and work of Christ for us. That is our call. So we need to remember why he's been gone. He's preparing a place for you. He's doing it currently. He's praying for you. But lastly, not only do we realize he's been gone, but all that he has done for us. All that he's done for us. If you ever struggle with being faithful as a servant of Christ, just pause and say, God, let me reflect over your goodness. Let me remind myself of who you are as my master. One of the questions we had submitted by someone was simply this. How could the Israelites in the Old Testament see all the goodness of God, all the miracles, all the workings, and still forget him, still choose to not worship him? I truly believe it's because they stopped realizing who he was. They chose to think of him differently or to think more of themselves and their convenience and their comfort. I truly believe that you and I are no different than the generations of Israelites which saw God move in miraculous ways and yet seem to forget him at countless moments in their lives. We have the complete and final revelation of God's word. It's right in front of us. We have our hands on it. It's on your device. It's in paper form. You have the word of God complete and full. You can read over and over again of all the goodness of God. 
then I believe if you were to sit across from him and say, God, how can I love you more? How can I be a better steward? I think first he would say, I just want to tell you how much I love you. And I think he would remind us of what he did for us so that we would be drawn into a relationship of responding to his act of love to us, not trying to prove something to him or gain it ourselves. May we constantly remember all that we have and all that we are given and all that he's done for us was by grace and all for his glory. This morning, we asked a simple question to begin. What would God say about how to love him more? I believe the answer is simply to realize that he has given us all things for his glory and remember all he has done for us in providing salvation now ascended to the father, preparing a place for us. So how do we apply that? That sounds really easy, right? Just remember and realize, realize all he's given to you and remember who he is and what he's done for you. But I want to give you a simple verse, Luke ten twenty seven. Love the Lord, your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. How do I remember these things? How do I manage well the things he's given to me? How do I, how do I manage my children well? Meaning, love on them and nurture them and raise them up in the admonition of the Lord. How do I show my wife grace that my prayers may not be hindered? For our, the wives here today, how do you submit in a way to your husbands and follow their leadership that shows respect and honor to them as you would follow Christ? How do we serve our church in the right way and not have an embittered spirit because somebody forgot to shake our hand and also serve in a way that whether it's inconvenient, we still love to serve? How do we love our neighbors as ourselves? How do we share the gospel? How do we disciple? It's found right here. First and foremost, it's not making God love you because you love him. No, he's already love, loving you and shown his love to you. Romans Five verse eight, but God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for you. See, his love's already been demonstrated to the whole world and it's been received in Christ. But in response, not as an act of merit, but just in response, we say, God, I want to love you with my mind, with my heart, with my body, with my soul, with everything I have. And when it starts there, you'll find those decisions to surrender will get a lot easier. You'll find all of a sudden you'll want to serve others. You'll want to demonstrate these things. Not because the Bible, or not because the church rather makes you do it. As some of us grew up in those kind of churches. And you have to do it or else you're not a good Christian. No, no, no. Stop worrying about others. Do you love God? Here's the application. You ready? Do you love God with all of you? Now I know if you're like me, you go, sometimes. Sometimes I don't. Just be real. Then pray, God, help me to grow in that to grow in a deeper love for you so that I'll be the steward you've called me to be, a faithful steward for your glory. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? As you begin to pray there where you are, and the praise band's going to come, and we're going to have a time of invitation. I just want to ask that you begin to pray and ask God to work in your heart and mind. Uh, my desire this morning is that nobody would leave this place feeling guilty or shamed. When we preach messages like this, the response from many believers, if they truly desire to see Christ glorified in their lives, is to see the areas that they fall, the areas of weakness, the areas where we need to grow. And all those things, when given by the Spirit of God through conviction, is good 
and healthy and needful so that we might repent of those areas and trust him more. But I pray that if you leave here today, that you would not leave in a way of saying, oh, I'm such a horrible person. I've blown it. I can't do this. I can't do that. This is not about beating ourselves up. This is about a real recognition of our weaknesses, of our failures, where we've fallen short. There's nothing wrong with admitting that. But we equally must understand there is grace and forgiveness when we repent and turn from those things. It's not about just overlooking those things like they're no big deal. No, they're real. and We need to acknowledge that before God. Repent of those things. But may we pray, Lord, I want to be your faithful steward. I want to love you more with all of me and all that I do. May I glorify you. As you continue to pray there where you are, I'm going to ask that we would also pray. There's a request that was given to me this morning. And I just want to lift up... uh, someone in our church family who had the loss of a loved one that was such a tragedy that this loved one was, uh, their life was taken from them. And uh, not giving any details or anything like that, but we just want to pray for that, that God would work in that family's heart and he knows who that family is. We pray for that family for comfort. We pray for grace. We pray for the individuals that were involved in this thing from the victims to those that were the ones that committed this heinous act, that those that did this act, that if they don't know Christ, they would come to know Christ by receiving the gospel, that there would be forgiveness and repentance of sins, and also that there would be justice in this. And so, Father, we pray that you'd work in that situation as well as we just give all this to you, and we ask that you would be glorified. And, Father, we just ask that you'd move and lead us by the working of the Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? We're going to have a time of invitation. Here's the simple application. Do you want to come and just say, Lord, I want to be that faithful steward. Lord, I want to be faithful in all things. Give me your strength. Give me your wisdom. I want to love you more with all of me. Not out of guilt or shame or fear, but out of a response to his love for you. Would you come and pray and say, God, I want that, that you would be glorified as we sing and worship him.